0: Did you know that you can listen to every single episode of Gangry the Podcast on our website? Just go to gangrythepodcast.com and you can listen to interviews with amazing writers and reporters like Pamela Koloff, David Grant, Janet Reitman, Tom Juneau, Eli Saslow, Ben Montgomery, Lane DeGregory, and so many more. Just go to gangrythepodcast.com. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y thepodcast.com.
1: Welcome to Gangry the Podcast, I'm Matt Tullis. On this episode, I talked with Sarah Weinman. Weinman is the author of The Real Lolita, The Kidnapping of Sally Horner, and The Novel That Scandalized the World. That book was published by Echo, an imprint of HarperCollins Publishers, in September. The book is a gripping true crime investigation into the 1948 abduction of Sally Horner, and how it inspired Vladimir Nabokov's classic novel, Lolita. Weinman had to dig deep into a wide-ranging collection of historical archives in order to tell this story.
2: I love archival work. In fact, I'm doing some uh, right now for future projects. There's just nothing quite like sitting in a library or university or some kind of institution and looking at people's letters or manuscript pages or ephemera.
1: Weinman regularly writes pieces of true crime long form, having been published by the New York Times, The Washington Post, The New Republic, The Guardian, and Buzzfeed, among others. But The Real Lolita is the first book she has written. She said she learned a lot about how to work with sources while working on this project.
2: I think I also learned that it's really difficult but important to get people to tell their essentially their deepest darkest secrets and that it's really important to have as much empathy and as much understanding and as much care that you don't just sort of waltz in and be like tell me the worst thing that ever happened to you in your life.
1: Weinman covers book publishing for Publishers Marketplace she is also the editor of the books Troubled Daughters, Twisted Lives, and of Women Crime Writers, Eight Suspense Novels of the 1940s and 50s. As usual, we've linked to The Real Lolita and more of Weinman's work. You can find that at our website. That's at www.gangritapodcast.com. Welcome to the Podcast, Sarah.
2: Thanks so much for having me, Matt.
1: To start things off, I was hoping that you could talk a little bit about what The Real Lolita uh, is about.
2: So the short answer is that it's about the real-life case that inspired Vladimir Novokov's novel Lolita, which was published in America 60 years ago this year. And um, I got interested in it first as a long-form piece. Um, I'd been looking for sort of my next crime story to work on. And as is my wont, I spend a lot of late nights on the internet looking at some combination of Wikipedia and entries about unsolved cases or missing people and Reddit threads and true crime related message boards. So all of that kind of converged into a, one specific rabbit hole that led me to this 2005 article in the Times Literary Supplement entitled What Happened to Sally Horner? And it wasn't the first time that I'd read that piece, but somehow this was the time when it stuck. And as I paid attention to what this particular writer, Nabokov scholar named Alexander Dolanin was arguing, which is that Lolita, which is of course about a middle-aged man's illicit, illegal, obsessive desire for a prepubescent girl named Dolores Hayes, that there were clues, some of them very much in evidence, some of them very much buried, that suggested that Nabokov knew about this kidnapping in 1948 of a girl named Sally Horner. And in fact, in Lolita, the novel, there's a line late in the book where Humbert Humbert, who's the middle-aged man in question, thinks, had I done to Dolly, that being Dolores Hayes or Lolita, had I done to Dolly, perhaps, what Frank LaSalle, a 50-year-old mechanic, had done to 11-year-old Sally Horner. And though I read Lolita at 16 and then reread it, Again, I wasn't, there's so many things to pay attention to Lolita that this wasn't a line that jumped out at me, but seeing it in the context of this essay, it all, all of it made me wonder, had anybody reported out Sally Horner's kidnapping as a crime story? So that's what I set out to do. And so I learned the details that showed that it took, it took her from Camden, New Jersey, which was where she grew up and on to Atlantic City and then Baltimore and then Dallas, and then finally to San Jose where she was rescued after a 21 month cross country nightmare. And so the more that I learned, the more that I just felt felt compelled to figure out what, what news information was still accessible, what court documents could I find, were there people still alive to remember Sally that I might be able to talk to, and so on and so forth. So the initial result was a long form piece published by a Canadian magazine called Hazlitt. But I knew pretty quickly that I had a lot more to say, especially not just about what happened to Sally herself, but how her life and her case intersected with Nabokov's writing of Lolita. And so that became the book.
1: Yeah. And, and so um, at, at what point did you realize that there was that connection? You know what I mean? That, that, I mean, you you said you read the book when you were 16, but but I guess in the process of researching Sally Horner, when did you start thinking, there definitely is more here that I want to look into?
2: It, I mean, when I read that initial Times Literary Supplement piece that was originally published in 2005, so it happened around mid to late of 2013, and I got to work on the long form story in March of 2014, and it was published in November of that year. So I spent several months gathering together information and documents and reporting what I could find at the time. But what I figured out, and it had to have happened at least a couple of months in, I remember just like collecting a bunch of, or sending out a bunch of FOIA requests and collecting a bunch of court documents. There were some appeals court files that kind of landed in my inbox, almost in the serendipitous manner. (laughs) And I just, I think what it is, is having done enough pieces of journalism is I've figured out as best as I can when a story fits more as a long form piece and when the long form piece is actually like, it's, it's sort of constrained and that there's much more that can be discovered and investigated and written about. And so that's what I felt with Sally's story that I was finding out a lot but I knew that if I had more time and more patience mm. and more resources, that I could answer all of the lingering questions that I couldn't quite answer just within a long form story. And that, and there's also that ultimately the piece that ran, I think, was just shy of 9,000 words. So I just felt like 9,000 words wasn't enough to cover the full spectrum of what I wanted to cover in writing about Sally's kidnapping and how it intersected with Lolita.
1: Right. Was there can you think of an example of one of those lingering questions that you really you really felt like you wanted to find the answer to but you, but you couldn't in in the shorter piece?
2: Absolutely. About a month before I filed the story, that was when I learned of Ruth Janish's existence. So Ruth Janish, of course, was the woman who helped engineer Sally's rescue. And so I was doing research at the Camden County Historical Society Library and looking at old uh, microfiche of the Camden Evening Courier and the, uh, the Daily uh, Post, and also later on some of the Philadelphia papers, since Philadelphia is just across the river from Camden. And I'm reading through these papers, and of course local papers are the, the best at just really getting you in the mindset of what a particular town or city was like on the day-to-day level. And I also found that um, a number of the reporters, I think of Jake Wiener, I think in particular, he was really good at covering this case. So I would read these pieces, and it was only then and there that I learned, I knew there was somebody that Sally had confided in, but I didn't know the person's name, and I didn't know what the connection was, and suddenly not only did I have a name, but there were quotes by her. So in the original Hazlitt piece, I represented her as sort of a more um cardboard heroine who engineered sally's rescue but then a few months later once i realized that i wasn't done and i still wanted to do some reporting and i decided to see if there were any um children of ruth janish who might still be alive and i found her youngest daughter and spoke with her first and in the midst of that initial conversation it became clear to me that Ruth Janish was a much more complicated figure than the newspaper articles had represented her to be. So of course I got much more interested and then speaking with her youngest daughter then led me to an elder daughter who is uh, pseudonymously referred to as Rachel in the book and that talking with her and getting a sense of what the family dynamics were like and how fraught and complicated and in many ways damaging. Learning about that really made Ruth a much more three-dimensional figure who did a lot of, she did a lot of terrible things, but she did do this one decent thing and it kind of, she wanted it to define her life. And of course that one decent thing was helping bring Sally home and out of the clutches of her kidnapper, Frank LaSalle.
1: It seems to me that in, in the reporting of this book um, there are two different two in a lot of ways kind of different uh, types of reporting um, in order to pull it off you know you've got the historical true crime reporting regarding Sally um, but then there's the liter- literary archival um, reporting as well um, in, in terms of um, digging into uh, Nabovkov and, and, and how he wrote his book Um, Is there one that you enjoy more than the other type of reporting or is is it similar to you? Uh, I'm curious about that.
2: I mean, the similarities are you're looking for answers to questions. And I love archival work. In fact, I'm doing some uh, right now for future projects. There's just nothing quite like sitting in a library or university or some kind of institution and looking at people's letters or manuscripts pages or ephemera. I mean, I remember going through Nabokov's archives. So he, excuse me, Nabokov has two main archives. The original one is at the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C. But the bulk of his papers are at the New York Public Library in the Berg collection, which is kind of this magical place. At the time (laughs) that I was doing research there, you weren't allowed to bring in phones or laptops. So it really felt like I was hermetically sealed off from, from from the world. They have since changed that so I went back more recently and I was able to bring in my phone and take a picture there and I thought this is thrilling but also really strange. Um, But I was looking through a folder that was just marked as miscellaneous material and I've kind of learned that that's the folder, those are the folders that I am most interested in looking through because often they aren't well cataloged, but they do contain some treasures. In this instance, the miscellaneous folder contained just all sorts of clippings and reviews and ephemera related to the publication of Lolita. And by ephemera, I mean, like, set, um, pictures of women who were dressed as Lolita. I'm thinking of Jaja Gabor, who uh, dressed up as her as part of a series of literary characters for a uh, centerfold of the, 19, of the August 1960 issue of Cosmopolitan. But also just any review in most every language that Nabokov understood, be it English, French, German, Russian, Italian, you name it. And yet, even in the midst of all this ephemera, there was nothing at all except for that note card in the LOC archives relating to Sally Horner. And because I knew there had been at least some correspondence, I found it intriguing that there, were no, there was no trace evidence of this. And so that's what led me to the conclusion, which I think is an important thing to think about, is that such research isn't as much about what you find as it is about what you don't find. And it's putting together um, conclusions and analyses based on what you have, but also what you don't have, that can build out. As much of a picture as you can but of course in doing so you have to make informed guesses and speculation.
1: What was uh, for you uh, as you were working on this book um, some of the bigger challenges when it came to reporting and and even writing as well?
2: I mean there were so many in part because I was writing about a story that began 70 years ago and so there were people who there were sources who died on me. Uh, When I started Recording out this story, Sally's brother-in-law Al Pinero was still alive, so I was lucky to uh, speak with him once by telephone. But by the time I began as a book, he had passed away. Uh, Another instance was Sally's best friend in the last year of her life, um, who at the time was known as Carol Starts. I was able to track her down, and that took some doing. Uh, It really was a matter of trying to figure out the correct married name at a particular time and cross-reference <laughs> and finally get a phone number and I cold called her. And amazingly she picked up. Wow. So, and I explained who I was and why I was calling and she said, and she had this wonderful gravelly voice of, you mean my friend Sally was the inspiration for Lolita? And I said, yeah, and we, we went from there. But she also regrettably passed away in 2017 and didn't live to see the publication of this book. So though there, those are sort of the more emotional uh, regrets that I have that uh, people that I talk to who I know would have appreciated knowing that the book was published or even being able to read it uh, were not around to see it. But for also from a reporting standpoint, just information disappears. I would I remember one day it was a very rainy day in I think May of 2017, and I was in Philadelphia doing some research a little bit fruitlessly, and then I took the Uh, what's called PATCO, which is one of the connecting trains between Philadelphia and Camden, and just decided, I'm just gonna see, maybe if I present myself in person, someone will find me some documents. And so I went to one courthouse, and then I went to an appeals courthouse, and I went to the police station, and I went to the prosecutor's office, and I just asked, and people would stare at me with these blank expressions, like, you really expect us to find documents from 1950? I said, well, it's worth a shot, right? (laughs) And by and large, I did not. But I have subsequently realized that sometimes you shake a tree and things emerge, but never on your schedule, it's always on the document's schedules. So I, and I had a book deadline and I didn't want to push it back because, because I might not have a trove of documents that would only lead me to a few choice details. So I would have to write around them and so that leads me to another pitfall that I wanna talk about, which is what happens when a nonfiction writer, or reporter, has to venture into speculative waters. And I didn't want to at first. Um, I had turned in the first draft of the book in, uh, a year ago, September, and my editors were, inc- I mean, they were amazing and they were incredibly helpful, but one of their notes, which they repeated more than once, was, okay, we have Sally's story, and we have Nabokov's story, but one of the ways in which you can bridge these two stories, these two narratives, is by bringing yourself into it. And when I protested because I thought, well, this is just going to make things more complicated, they stressed that you're not writing a memoir, but the reader needs to know that what you don't know, because that actually will give you greater authority with the details that you do know. And so once I sort of rattled that around in my mind, that made me rewrite certain chapters a little more effortlessly. So I'm thinking of the chapter where Sally has spent a few months in Baltimore. And so I had a bunch of details. They just weren't adding up as a cohesive narrative. And I would try and try. It's almost like I would throw up a bunch of dice and they would land and the numbers just wouldn't check out. Or it just it just didn't coalesce. And so when I rewrote it, the first line I thought of, oh, I'm going to paraphrase, Here, here's the, the point in the story when I tell you what happened to uh, Sally Horner and Frank LaSalle in Baltimore. Frankly, I didn't learn all that much.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: But what I wanted to do with the speculative aspects was keep it as limited as possible and keep it, again, to details that were verifiable. So while I couldn't know what Sally was doing at a given point because I knew more or less the street she lived on, the fact that there was a diner at the end of the road, the school that she went to, the time frame that she was present, I could then extrapolate and go, well, let me see if I can find a comparable memoir of somebody who was a student at a Catholic school in Baltimore around the same time. What might they be able to uh, tell me? And so that's how I was able to at least you know, within reason, be like, okay, here's a good guess as to what I think a typical day Sally might have had in Baltimore. But that was the real limit to which I was comfortable speculating. I wasn't going to intuit her thoughts and feelings at those points and figure out which people she may have interacted with. If I if I listed names, it's because I did find them in in records or court or court documents. But otherwise, I just that that was sort of my brick wall that I deliberately wanted to run up against.
1: Right, right. And I think it it worked really well, and I like that that chapter that you're talking about. Um, and I think what makes it work is the transparency, too, because you're saying, hey, look, I don't know for certain, but given the research that I've done and the stuff that I do know, this is what it was most likely like for Sally in Baltimore, and that worked out really well. Um, yeah, and
2: I mean, if, if somebody came forward and said... I knew Sally in Baltimore, and this is what happened. I would be not just happy, but I'd really welcome having that knowledge.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So I feel like even though The Real Alita is published as a hardcover, I still feel this niggling thing of this story, there could be more. right? And so when the paperback is out next fall, I will be updating it based on some information that has since come through. Not like a huge amount, but just things here and there, because ultimately my goal is to tell the most accurate story possible. And I wanted to come as close to the truth about what happened to Sally Horner as I can possibly report out. But of course, and I think this is the main philosophical quandary of any nonfiction writer, is that we have facts, but we're constructing a story, we're creating a narrative. And as a result were beholden to the way our particular brains work. So somebody else might have approached this story in a very different way because they're not me, they don't have my brain. They wouldn't necessarily make the associations and connections that I do. They wouldn't necessarily seek out some of the uh, information sources and people that I did. But, so my Sally Horner, so to speak, is as accurate a reflection of the information that i had on hand but it's also why i never want to forget that sally was family she had people who loved her she had people she loved people who remember her and so even though it was important for me to tell her story in the best way that i knew how i also wanted to make sure that i was you know within reason doing right by her relatives because they're the ones who are who still have to live with this unimaginable loss all these decades later. All
1: right. You know, uh, I have done some uh, historical archival um, type research and stories, and the hardest thing for me is really bringing the writing to life, and I thought you did a really, really great job with that in this book, and that it reads so lively. Um, what Can you take me through your process when, when you do all this research and then you sit down and you have to, to bring this stuff, you know, these old, Court records and these old old newspaper articles um, uh, to life. What what's your process like?
2: I mean, this is where I think having cut my writing teeth writing a lot of fiction is helpful. Obviously, fiction is imagination, one hundred percent imagination, and nonfiction is supposed to be one hundred percent truth. But in reality, when writing fiction or nonfiction to entertain and to engage the reader, writers can employ a lot of the same techniques. So I felt that it was really important that The Real Lolita read fast. I wanted it to have the sense of being a suspense thriller. And so pacing was really important and creating indelible characters as best as I could was really important to me. It's not so much just being like, here are a few facts were placed here and there. But I really wanted the sentences to reflect that these were living, breathing people. And so I do feel like the techniques between fiction and nonfiction do help one another. Um, And certainly the fact that I published short stories from my early 20s onward helped me as a journalist. And then I'm presuming nonfiction and all the techniques that I have learned from doing long-form reporting and now books will eventually help when I next approach uh, fiction projects. Mm-hmm. So it isn't that they, you know, it isn't that fiction and nonfiction blur, it's that the techniques are can be more similar because ultimately I'm telling stories. And some and in this case these are true stories, but the way that we tell stories and the way that we approach narrative all have the same aim, which is, is the reader going to put this down? Is the reader going to care? Is there going to be an emotional connection? Um, And are they going to keep reading? And so all of those are central questions, no matter what side of the fiction nonfiction divide you are on.
1: Well, I'm Matt Tullis, and I've been talking with Sarah Weinman, uh, author of The Real Lolita, The Kidnapping of Sally Horner, and the novel that scandalized the world. We're going to take a short break. Uh, We'll be back in just about one minute. This is Gangry the Podcast.
0: Gangry the Podcast is brought to you by the College of Arts and Sciences at Fairfield University. Fairfield grounds students in the 500-year-old Jesuit tradition of academic rigor and personal reflection, providing them with the critical skills needed to succeed in work and life. Students work with passionate faculty and have the chance to study abroad, participate in civic engagement, and conduct hands-on research across a variety of disciplines. Ginkry the Podcast is also brought to you by the Department of English at Fairfield University, home to the Digital Journalism major as well as an English major with concentrations in Literature, Creative Writing, Professional Writing, and Teacher Education. For more information on the College of Arts and Sciences and the Department of English, go to fairfield.edu.
1: Welcome back to Gangry the Podcast. I'm Matt Tullis, and I'm talking with Sarah Weinman, author of The Real Lolita, which mixes in historical true crime reporting with some historical literature-based reporting. Uh, The book was published by Echo, an imprint of HarperCollins back in September. Uh, Sarah, did you learn anything about yourself as a writer or a reporter while you were doing this project?
0: That's an
2: interesting question. I think I learned that, I mean... First and foremost, I learned that I could write a nonfiction book Right. as <laughs> I had not done so before. And I didn't, I sort of, you know, I think every project has its own internal calculus. And because I wrote the, the real elite of the book out of order in part because I'd had this long form story, so I didn't want to repeat myself, but also just because of some other reasons, I was more housebound for the winter of 2017. So then I would concentrate on the Bokov sections. And then when winter was over and I felt more ready to travel, then I could combine a lot of the research and the reporting and get those all done. So just learning how to write a nonfiction book was itself a tremendous experience. I think I also learned that it's really difficult but important to get people to tell their, essentially their deepest, darkest secrets and that it's really important to have as much empathy and as much understanding and as much care that you don't just sort of waltz in and be like, tell me the worst thing that ever happened to you in your life. You know, it requires a lot of finessing. It requires a lot of preparation, background conversations. So again, I'll bring up the woman I call Rachel, where our first conversation was on background, on the telephone, and I could tell that she wanted to tell me something, but she wasn't gonna do it over the phone. And so I told her, look, I'm when I'm able to travel again, I'd le- and you know, better for the both of us, why don't I come and visit you where you live? And so I did a few months later, and we met in a town in the Pacific Northwest, and in a over, a few hours, first in a public space, and then later at her own home, she told me what I had been expecting to hear, and it was as horrifying as I thought it would be. And I remember, and she wanted to keep talking, and we did that afternoon, and then she invited me to dinner, and I said, look, I know that I'm reacting quite strongly to what you've told me. I can only imagine how many orders of magnitude it is for you, so maybe we should just take a break and sleep on it and see how, where things are at in the morning. And so when I called her the next morning, she thanked me for doing that. She did need to process it, and she did need to kind of sit with what she had told me. And then I met her again, and we spoke for a few more hours. So ultimately, it was a really productive visit. But again, it's it's it is important to know when to push forward and when to pull back and to sort of let sources kind of guide you with respect to their own emotions and their own feelings and not to rush them and to really respect the details and the information that they're they want to convey because they do want to tell you stuff and they do want to connect but journalists can't necessarily impose their own opinions or perspectives right away so i i, I so, much, so much of reporting is listening so much of reporting is waiting so much of reporting is Silence before people break it, and so just getting to experience all those things firsthand. Already, I know that it will make me a better journalist on the next projects that I embark upon.
1: Uh, you, you just mentioned that this is the first book, uh, first nonfiction book that you've written, but you've edited um, three other books, I believe. Right, uh, the, the the troubled daughters and twisted wives. And, yes, that's then- the
2: paperback uh, anthology of. Uh, crime fiction short stories by women of the 40s through the 70s. Right. And then I edited a two-volume set of novels from the 40s and 50s by women for the Library of America called Women Crime Writers. What uh,
1: what what was that like? And, and how does doing a project like that compare to doing a full-length nonfiction book that includes a lot of reporting?
2: So, one of the reasons I wanted to do the paperback anthology was to sort of get a sense of what publication, book publication was like, but also at a more modest level where I could advocate for writers who were not me. I mean, I was already starting to do some long form reporting, but I I didn't have a project that was book length and I was passionately interested and still am in mid-century crime fiction by women. At the time that I started on what became Troubled Daughters in 2011, it really felt that there was a gap that had not been adequately been discussed or articulated. Look, we knew a lot about hard-boiled fiction by men, and we knew a lot about sort of golden age, cozy crime fiction by women, but there was this in-between phase, this in-between group of suspense writers about whom people just didn't think about as a group or took seriously as a group. But I just found that reading their work was so informative, especially with respect to reading more contemporary suspense fiction by women. And serendipitously, Gone Girl came out just as I was working on this project. And so suddenly I had a hook where I could be like, well, here are the grandmothers of Gone Girl. And so Troubled Daughters was published and it sold well. And that led me to a conversation with the then publisher of the Library of America, and they invited me to edit this two volume set, a project that they had been thinking about off and on for some time. But I think just, I came along at the right time and it was the right project for me. And it was wonderful to read all these older novels and figure out which essentially should be part of a modern canon. It still amazes me that I got to do this, but I learned a lot about book publishing. And part of it was too, um, I've had this day job for a long time as a publishing reporter and so I am very well versed in how the book publishing trade works. That said, when it came time to write The Real Alita*, I had to put all that aside and I found that you're when you're, when you're writing you are alone with the page no matter what. It doesn't matter what you might know about how the book business works or if you're the most clueless person. You still have to produce the best book that you possibly can. And the only way you're going to do it is to sit down in front of your screen and type as needed and revise as needed. And, of course, I'm lucky that I have two amazing editors, um, Zach Wagman in, in the U.S. for Echo and Ann Collins in Canada for Knopf, who really got this book into shape and really helped shepherd not just their vision, but my vision. And so it's a collaborative process, but in the end, it still ends with me, the writer.
1: Uh, How did you get your start uh, as a reporter and a writer?
2: I mean, I like to say it was through a series of happy accidents. (laughs) Um, Let's just say that I was not the writer in the family. I have an older brother who uh, still lives in Toronto, and he was a longtime writer and reporter for McLean's, which is the equivalent of Time Magazine in Canada. When I went to university, later graduate school, it was pursuing science. Um, And when I went into graduate school, I moved to New York in August of 2001 to go to John Jay College of Criminal Justice and study in their forensic science program. So I'd always had an interest in crime, really from an early age. And I think back and I realized that being a child in the 80s in Canada, there were just a lot of formative crimes that were happening. I mean, I was too young for this one serial killer, Clifford Olson, but I certainly heard about his crimes a little bit later. And when I was a teenage girl, the major event crime-wise were uh, the killings by Paul Bernardo and his wife, Carla Molka, of teenage girls who were a little bit older than I was. So I just felt like a real residence. And it felt very scary to be a teenage girl at that time in the early 90s. So all of that kind of influenced what I wanted to study and what I wanted to pursue. And so when I learned of John Jay's existence and thought, wait, I can combine biology and crime in a discipline this, and I get, and I can move to New York? This is amazing, <laughs> I have to do this. So I saved up, I spent a year working and saved up the tuition money applied, got in, moved. 9-11 happened and of course my 9-11 experience was both very distant, but I had a particular window because of classmates who were working at the office of chief medical examiner processing remains and really working on the ground. And so the following summer I did an internship at the ME's office in their investigations unit and there were still people who were assigned to help process human remains. And so I really learned a lot from being in that particular internship environment. While I was at grad school, I was also working one day a week at a wonderful mystery bookshop called Partners in Crime in uh, New York's Greenwich Village. And so that was really my first exposure to the book business. I quickly learned that no, I didn't want to own a bookstore. Um, There was just, the, the margins were too low and the stress was too high but I built up a initial library of contemporary crime fiction, which I had been reading seriously since college. And I met authors and I met editors and agents and other people in the book business. And eventually, and I'm skipping ahead a few steps, when I had returned back to my hometown in Ottawa, uh, in part because my lease was up, I had finished the coursework of my graduate school and I had a thesis to write up, I had a lot of downtime. And this was 2003, and there weren't that many blogs to begin with, and there were none at all devoted to crime fiction. So I started one with the very fanciful title, and I wish I remembered why I picked it, but it's called Confessions of an Idiosyncratic Mind. It lasted about seven years, and it kind of became a virtual water cooler for the crime fiction community. And I would attend conventions, and I would go to book events, and essentially this blog led me to my first book reviewing assignments, which led to columns, which eventually, as I grew more restless and ambitious, led me to want to pursue reporting for short form as a publishing reporter, and then more long form pieces. So by, 20, by 2012, I was pretty well on track of long form crime stories are really what I want to do most of. But I also do like literary criticism and book reviewing. And in fact, I'm as we speak, I'm working on a couple of pieces. So I never those are always sort of the two sides of my professional
1: brain. All right. I know you had mentioned that you also kind of started writing uh, fiction uh, yes. at one point. Uh, are those all also crime related or, or do they spin off in some way?
2: Let's put it this way. The vast majority of the short fiction that I have published either appear in Ellery Queen's Mystery Magazine or its sister publication, Alfred Hitchcock's Mystery Magazine or various crime-related anthologies. So I know I have a story. It was accepted for publication this year, which means it'll probably be published sometime next fall by Alfred Hitchcock. I had a story last year in Ellery Queen. I had a story last year in this one anthology Um, relating art to crime stories. So I find that crime is such a roomy genre that it pretty much can encompass any idea in any form and any theme you could possibly imagine. And I just feel like crime, crime is everything to me. Crime is society, crime is philosophy, crime is just anything. And so I don't think I'm going to run out of stories to pursue, whether they're as fiction or as nonfiction, that don't have some criminal element to them, because I just I'm fascinated. I feel like we can't understand the way the world works without understanding how uh, crime plays into that.
1: Well, Sarah, thank you so much for joining the podcast. It's it's just been wonderful talking with you uh, about your book, uh, The Real Lolita, as well as your your writing life.
2: Thank you so much, Matt. It's been a pleasure.
1: I've been talking with Sarah Weinman. Weinman is the author of The Real Lolita, The Kidnapping of Sally Horner and The Novel That Scandalized the World. The book was published by Echo, an imprint of HarperCollins Publishers in September. As usual, we've linked to The Real Lolita as well as more of Weinman's work on our website. You can find that at www.gangrythepodcast.com.
0: Stay up to date with the podcast by following us on Twitter. That's at Gangry Podcasts. Gangry is spelled G-A-N-G-R-E-Y. You can also like the podcast on Facebook. You can subscribe to Gangry the Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or any Google Play app. Just search Gangry, that's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y, podcast.
1: Gangry the Podcast is produced in Donnarumma Studios at Fairfield University. It's made possible by the College of Arts and Sciences and the Department of English at Fairfield U. Our music comes from Audio Nautics. The promos and sponsorship messages were voiced by Mimi Lachlan and Gracie Eldrenkamp. This episode was hosted and produced by yours truly. I'm Matt Tullis. Thanks for joining us.